Psalm 87. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High Himself will establish her. The Lord records as He registers the peoples. This one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. If you could um, turn in your uh, bulletin to Psalm 87, or turn in your Bibles to Psalm 87, that was the psalm reading for this morning. Uh, We're going to look at that here in a few minutes, for a few minutes. Uh, So back to the story of the Bible. Um, Once again, uh, 10 second reset. God creates this beautiful world that he's designed to bring him glory, and he puts in this world special creatures that are designed more, more so than any other creature to reflect his image, to be God reflectors, image bearers. Uh, human beings, we rebel against God, and because of that, uh, we create disorder and chaos and uh, even death into his universe. God comes up with a plan to fix this. He tells uh, Eve that her child, that a child of hers and one of her offspring is going to repair the problem. Later on, he tells Abraham that one of your offspring, Abraham, one of your family is going to repair the problem. Later on, we find out that out of Abraham's family, specifically David and David's family are going to sit on the throne uh, forever. Last week and for the, 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 the past few weeks, we've been talking about Christ's death and resurrection and what that means. Last week, we talked about how the promises that were made to Abraham and his offspring are fulfilled completely and only in Jesus of Nazareth. This week, let's move on to what happens next. In the story of the Bible, what happens next is Acts, is that Jesus sends his spirit. We'll talk about that in a few months together. Jesus sends his spirit, pours it out on his followers, and the Christian church, the, the Christian church takes off. It explodes. Fastest growing religion in the history of the universe has been uh, Christianity in the first 150, 200 years of its existence. And what's remarkable about that is it did it with absolutely zero military power, absolutely zero political power behind it. In fact, a lot of military and political power opposed to it. It did it with absolutely zero cultural relevance behind it. It did it with no tangible benefits. The earliest Christian, if you read Paul, he doesn't go around and saying, hey, you should believe in this Jesus guy because you'll be a lot happier if you do or you'll feel a lot better about yourself if you do, or your finances will really get cleaned up, or your marriage can be made great. But basically, all of Paul's letters are, you should follow Jesus, now you're probably gonna get killed if you do this, but he's the Lord of the universe now. And with, with, a, it's, with a crazy message like that, with no real benefit for anybody, it manages to explode and take off. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at Psalm 87 today for a few minutes and talk about the book of Acts. I'm not gonna talk specifically about the book of Acts but I'm gonna talk about what's happening in the book of Acts, the growth of the kingdom of God beyond just Jesus, King of the Jews, to Jesus, King of the Jews, but King of the nations, King of the universe, Lord of the universe. So Psalm 87, and let's not read it again, but I'll just point out to you, and if you're looking in your Bible, you will see a couple of selahs, which don't get get put in the bulletin. We usually don't say those. But 
uh, nobody's really sure what the word sila means. But in Psalm 87, at least, it's, it's a section marker. There's three sections here in Psalm 87, verses one through three. Verses four through six is the second section, and then verse seven kind of stands on its own. So let's talk about these three sections and what these three sections do. The first section describes to us the narrowness of Christianity. The second section, verses four through six, describe the broadness of Christianity. And then um, finally, verse seven describes the dance and the song of Christianity. So first of all, the narrowness of Christianity in verses one through three. And let's look at this together. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. So it's talking about the city of Jerusalem. It stands on Mount Zion. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. God absolutely loves Jerusalem. It's his favorite city in the world. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. So God loves Jerusalem. What does this mean? Now, now that we've worked through the story of the Bible, it should be more apparent what this means. God doesn't love Jerusalem because of any civic qualities it has. He's not like, you know, quality of living versus cost of living is really fantastic. Or the view from Mount Olive is so wonderful. Like it's my favorite. Or he's not like Jerusalem just has the best restaurant scene. And that's why I love it. Why God loves Jerusalem, you've seen this now starting in Genesis and all the way through to the Gospels is because it's the place that God has decided to live in. It's where he put his temple. Jerusalem was his home. It's, I mean, again, and we talked about this several months ago, God is everywhere, he's omnipresent, yes, but there are special places where he chooses to uniquely, I mean, this is the only place where he chooses to do this, where he chooses to live, and the tabernacle and temple in Jerusalem is that place in the Old Testament. It is his home, and because of that, it's the place where sins get forgiven, the only place where sins get forgiven. It's the only place where he actually lives. It also, after a while, it's, you know, Exodus 40, we're talking about God living you know, in the tabernacle. Fast forward, zoom forward to 2 Samuel. It's the place where the throne of God's anointed one, God's Messiah is, is in Jerusalem. So God loves it, not because it's this fantastic city, but because it's the place where he lives and it's the place where his anointed one lives. It's the place where the temple and the throne are. Right? Now, Again, it's a review from a couple weeks ago. The temple is now Jesus. Jesus insists that he is the place on earth where God lives. He's the only place on earth where God reveals himself. Jesus is the only place on earth where God forgives sins. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is also David's son, the king. Because of that, when we read about Jerusalem in the Old Testament in Psalms like this, don't be thinking like, Wow, I should go visit Jerusalem. You probably should go visit Jerusalem someday. But the, the, the point here is in Psalm 87 is that Jerusalem is important because it is Jesus. Jesus fulfills what Jerusalem is. And so when God says in here, when the psalmist say, when the sons of Korah say, on the holy mount stands the city found, the Lord loves the gates of Zion, a better way to understand that for us on this side of the resurrection is to say he's talking about Jesus. God loves Jesus. God loves Jerusalem because it's the one place where he chose to live. God loves Jesus because Jesus is the one place on earth where God has chosen to dwell. Jerusalem is the only place where God chose to put his temple and his throne. I realize when I say that, that that feels restrictive because the payout for a Christian sermon is gonna be, I'm gonna say, Jesus is the only place. The only way that you can know God is through Jesus. 
And I, I know that, there's, that, that that's restrictive. And for, for some of you, you're cool with that. And some of you, you really struggle with that. And some of you, those of you who aren't believers, that's kind of like a, a barrier between you and Christianity is this notion that, you know, some, some dude would stand up in front of a room full of people and say, there's only one way. There's only one way to make connections with God. And, you know, the impulse for, 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 for a lot of us and for our culture at large is to say, well, that's not really, that's, that's, that's you know, that's oppressive. We, we should be more open. Like, that's my way. Personally, Jesus is my way to connect with God, but who am I to say that other people and other cultures, they, they, they've got their own ways, and who am I to say that that's wrong? And, and, I, and I know that that has a sort of sense of, like, niceness to it, but it's not possible to do that. Nobody can maintain that. There's a certain sort of, like, small talk level where it's possible to stay in that area where, you know, people believe what they want. I believe what I want. It's totally fine. But when the rubber meets the road, everybody has some sort of foundational standard that they go back to and say, no, this is the way. I'm about to say something that's going to be boring. I'm just lower the expectations. I'm going to drop this on you before I do this. I'm going to read to you from a piece of writing by a philosopher named Thelma Levine. She's not a Christian believer as far as I know. And what, the, the section I'm gonna read to you, I was reading this recently, she's discussing, again, I, you know, uh, this is boring, I know. Uh, she's discussing Plato and how he interacted with the sophist, which was a school of thinking around Plato's day. Plato was against the sophist because the sophist said, you can't know anything. Every culture, every group has their own truth. And we, in our group, we have our own truth, and that's fine. But we have no right to tell people, the sophists are very, very current, right? We have no right to tell other people that what they think or what they believe or their behaviors are wrong because that's their own business. And Plato attacked that. I mean, I disagree with Plato about a lot of things. But he's right about this. And, and Thelma Levine, in this book, points out exactly what the problem is and how it's untenable. It's unsustainable to say, Everybody should just be allowed to think what they want. And here's what she says. I'm gonna try to, maybe I'll like throw in some sound effects to make this interesting. She says, according to the sophist, no absolute standards for societies exist. And since none exist, none is able to evaluate them. No absolute standards exist. You can't look at my group and their group over there and say, there's a rule that both groups should be obeying. I'm allowed to say that for my group, but not for their group. Uh, that she's talking about, she's talking as a sophist. Then it also follows that no society can be evaluated or compared with any other with respect to meeting standards of liberty, physical health, mental health, education, the quality and extent of cruelty practiced, satisfaction of felt needs, treatment of women, distribution of wealth, democratic participation in decision-making. For the sophist and for present-day cultural and ethical relevist, there are no universal standards for any of these issues and therefore, no society can be judged better or worse than another for its performance on any of them. See what she's saying? Like, I'm not allowed to say, we're right. My society is right about the importance of staying in school till you're 18. And some other society says, you don't need to do that. You know, you need to, maybe some society will say, you need to learn some basic tools for getting to it. But then it's okay to get out and get a job. And my society has no right to say that that society is wrong. This is the sophist position. This is our current cultural philosophical relativist position too. She goes on, she says this, Athens is therefore no better than Sparta, but only different. The product of a different set of circumstances, each culture evolved in its own way, in its own region, in its own time. 
This point of view is appealing for its tolerance of every kind of society. It's also appealing for not being judgmental, for not sitting in judgment on other groups of persons, as some of its defenders like to say. Right. Then she goes on to say, that, 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 that makes sense. That actually makes sense to me. I feel that too. I feel the weight if I stand up here and I say, you, you know, this group is wrong. You know, the Buddhists are wrong about this. Or philosophical relativists are wrong about this. I feel the weight of feeling like I'm being judgmental. Like, what right do I have to say? Christianity is the only way. She goes on to say this, though. But there are obvious drawbacks to cultural and ethical relativism. And then she goes on to do, this is the classic move that philosophers who are against relativism will do, to talk about the Nazis. So uh, I don't need to talk about that. You guys are all familiar with the history of the Nazis. She kind of does a short review of that, and then she says this. But according to the relativist position, no judgment could be passed on the Nazis. No external universal or absolute standard could be applied to this unique culture, which had evolved in its own way with its own standards and values. But in opposition to cultural and ethical relativism, the voice of humanity cried out in judgment against the Nazis that this was a culture which had sunk to the depths of evil and had brought hell to earth. You see what she's saying? If you want to play the game where you say, there's really, like, I personally, I believe in Jesus. I don't think it's my right to tell anybody else that they should believe in Jesus. Now, she's not, she's not a Christian, so she's not saying that. I'm saying that part. But if you want to play the game where you say everybody should have a right to their own standards and values and choices of behavior and ideologies and uh, the way that they judge themselves, everybody has a right to their own one. Then, if you want to play that game, when you talk about the Nazis, you have to say, hey, that was their thing. I have no right to, I personally think that genocide is wrong. I personally think that slaughtering six million Jews because they are Jews is wrong, but I don't have a right to tell Nazis that they're wrong about that. But nobody does that. Why is that? So back to my original point. It's unsustainable. Relativism is, uns at some point, you will come back to a foundational standard that you have somewhere. It's either written down or you're just kind of making it up as you go where you say, nope, this is wrong for everybody. Forcing girls to get married when they are underage is wrong for every culture. Sexual abuse is wrong in any culture. Genocide is wrong in any culture. When you say those, you are saying, I have some sort of universal standard that I feel comfortable applying to everybody. And all I'm saying this morning is, is you can either have an uncritical universal standard where you just kind of make it up, you know, or we can go to some sort of sacred text like the Bible where God says, Jerusalem is the one and only city that I love. Jerusalem is the place where I have chosen to dwell. And that's all Christianity is saying is, we've decided to write down on paper our foundational standard. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, you can disagree with that. That's totally fine but not on the grounds of you don't have any right to tell anybody else that. Because when you say that, you're telling me that your universal standard, which is you shouldn't, nobody should be allowed to tell anybody else what they think, and be, that's oppressive. That's your universal standard that you're putting, you see what I'm saying? Everybody has a universal standard that they're using. Ours is just on paper and in public. Jesus Christ is the only way, the truth, and the life. Okay, that's the narrowness of Christianity. Let's talk about the broadness of Christianity. I mentioned this in the sermon briefly next week. Jerusalem is the one and only place where God has chosen to dwell. That's the message of verses one through three. But check out verses four through six. 
Among those who know me, I mention Rahab. Now, that's not Rahab from the book of Joshua. Rahab, her name is Rahab, but Rahab in the Old Testament is frequently a nickname for the country of Egypt. Among those, I count Rahab and Babylon. These are, at the time of writing, these are the two biggest empires on either side of Israel. Babylon to the north, uh, Rahab or Egypt to the south. Behold, Philistia. Philistia is Israel's long-term enemy. Tyre, Tyre is the economic powerhouse of the region. Phoenician, uh, they mastered seafaring in 1000, you know, 1000 BC. They're traveling all over the Mediterranean, uh, doing uh, financial deals, economic deals, making tons of money. Uh, Tyre was a very rich city. With Cush, Cush is south of um, Egypt, in current day Sudan or Ethiopia. This is kind of like regions that are far away from us. This, check out this line at the end of verse four. This one was born there, they say. What does that mean? The psalmist says, we're looking around all over the world, and at some point in the future, we will say, people in Babylon, people in Asia, uh, uh, people in Phoenicia, people in Europe, people in Africa, this one was born in Zion. He goes on to to, to unpack that further. Verse five, and of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the most high himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the people, this one was born there. So you see what he's saying? All over the world people get born and they will be born into the kingdom of God. They'll be born into God's family and God will look at them and say, this one is a citizen of Jerusalem. This one's a citizen of Zion. It doesn't necessarily mean that, and that's, for those of you who believe in Jesus, that's who you are, because it, it doesn't necessarily mean that the current day city of Jerusalem, you're a citizen there. Remember, Jerusalem is, on this side of the resurrection, Jesus. Once you are in Jesus, it doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter if you're from Babylonia. It doesn't matter if you're from Egypt. It doesn't matter if you're from Sudan. It doesn't matter if you're from uh, Tyre. It doesn't matter if you're from Philistia. If you are in Jesus Christ, all these things that have separated us now unite us. This text is saying, verses one through six, put them together, verses one through three, Christianity is the most exclusive religion in the world. The way is narrow, Jesus says, it's just him. But it's the broadest religion in the world. It's the broadest way of life in the world. It's the broadest hobby in the world, the broadest philosophy in the world, the broadest ideology in the world. Anybody can be involved in this. Rich or poor, whatever your color is, whatever your gender is, wherever you're from, Whatever your particular sin hang-up is, the sins that you struggle with, whatever your hobbies are, Christianity is big enough to encompass all of these and say, all of you are honorary, that's the wrong word because you actually are literally citizens of Jerusalem, citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem, citizens of Jesus Christ. Now this has really terrific ramifications for how we talk about Christianity. The question, if this is the case, if being a part of this kingdom, this broad kingdom, is just to be connected to Jesus, then the question in Psalm 87 and throughout the rest of Scripture too is not, we'll get to this in the third point real quickly, the question is not who is right and who is wrong. See, that's the way our culture does ideological dialogue. So social media, talking heads, politicians, you and the buddies sitting around talking about all these things, politics was better. The impulse is to say, okay, I'm going to argue why I'm right and why you're wrong. The question isn't who's right and who's wrong. The question is 
Who is connected to Jesus? That's the question. Now, I heard, uh, those of you who uh, were here last week for the sermon, I heard from somebody this week, it's not, not anybody I know or have ever met, but somebody you know, watched the sermon on YouTube and then um, were really upset with the, with the sermon because I did not appropriately bash the Muslims, right? So you talk about Hamas, and they considered to be my duty as a Christian pastor to talk about how the Muslims are evil and you know, X, Y, and Z and why we should hate them and be scared of them. And I'm, I'm not gonna, I, here, I'll tell you why I didn't do that. Because the question isn't who, the question isn't, oh, I'll say it this way. Maybe this will get me in trouble. That's not boring. When I say something like this, that, that's actually more interesting. My problem with Muslims, your problem with whoever it is that you disagree with, the problem that, as a Christian pastor, I have with uh, Jews, the problem that I have with relativists, is not that they're Jews or that they're Muslims or that they're relativists or, the, or that they're Zoroastrians or, or whatever it is that they are. The problem is, is that they, they don't believe in Jesus. If a Muslim wanted to believe in Jesus, that Muslim would be allowed to become a member of God's kingdom. The problem with the Muslim is not that they're a Muslim. The problem with the Muslim is that they don't believe in Jesus. The problem with Aaron Miller, so I'm a Christian, so I'm right and everybody else who disagrees with me is wrong, right? No. I, I too have my own problems. And churches like ours that emphasize doctrinal purity, which is good, so I'm not saying that's not important, it's super important. The tendency is to think that because doctrinal purity is important to us, that once we have doctrinal purity, then that's, we've got it. We're right, and people who disagree with this is wrong. That, that's not true, though. Like, again, this, is, this could get me in trouble. And, and, just decontextualizes a problematic statement, so just bear with me here. I'm not saved by doctrinal purity. I'm not saved by good theology. I'm not saved by being right, because quite frankly, I'm wrong a lot of times. Unless I have been resurrected and perfectly sanctified and glorified and been returned to earth as some sort of representative of perfection, which I haven't been, I'm wrong about a lot of things. What's my issue? Do I need to get right about some stuff? Sure, but my main issue is I need Jesus. My main issue is not to find the group of people that agree with me and have the same theology as me so I can have a niche like every other subgroup in our culture. My issue is I need to go to the narrow gate, which is Jesus. And when I get in there, I find that I'm connected to all different sorts of people through Jesus Christ, being baptized into Jesus Christ. See, Christianity is narrow, but it's extremely broad. I'll say this. I, and I had a conversation with somebody recently about this. Um, again, try, try to be uh, delicate and super careful here. Um, who, which sexual sins prevent you from coming to the rail at St. James? Which sexual sins are okay and which ones are like verboten? And the answer is, is on one hand, all of them do. Christianity is very, very narrow. Jesus demands perfection. If you're going to come up here to the rail and take communion, you have to be perfect. You cannot come into God's presence with any sin. It's extremely narrow. Once you get in that narrow gate, it's extremely broad. There's a, a lot of you in here struggle with pornography. Some of you have had affairs. Some of you struggle with same-sex attraction. 
Which one of these are the nice sins and which one are the, the bad sins where you can't come to the rail? None of them. Every single person with whatever you struggle with, you are welcome at the rail. Because once you get into that narrow gate of Jesus, once you realize repentance of sins and faith in Jesus, it opens up to all sinners. Because you know that once you get in the gate, although we still struggle with sins, in God's eyes, it's the narrow part, we are now perfect in Jesus Christ. If we can start thinking about Christianity in this way, I think it'll help us with the third point, which has to do with evangelism, okay? And this is a, this is a short one here. So we have the narrowness of Christianity, we have the broadness of Christianity, and then the dance and the song of Christianity. Verse seven says, singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. I, I, at first in my notes, I put down the song and dance of Christianity, because in the, in, the, in, in the Bible, it's singers and then dancers. And then, of course, as soon as I said that out loud, I realized, you know, song and dance has its own bad connotations. And I didn't want to imply that Christianity was a song and dance routine. So I switched them around. Dancers, the, the, the dance and the song of Christianity. At the end of this psalm, the psalmist says, singers and dancers alike say about Jerusalem, all my springs are in you. All my springs are in you. Now, what does that mean? There's an image in the psalms, in Ezekiel too, it gets kicked around a little bit, that in Jerusalem, are the springs that quench the thirst of everybody who lives there. I'll just give you Psalm 46.4. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. There's this river that refreshes and keeps alive everybody who is a citizen of Jerusalem. At the end of the psalm, you have the dancers and the singers celebrating the fact that in Jerusalem we're kept alive and we're refreshed, we're given strength, we're given energy. Just talking about Jesus, remember? What's our role in this? Three things real quick will be done. First of all, to recognize, getting, to recognize that Jesus is where we get our life and our satisfaction from. That Jesus, in, in our home, the heavenly Jerusalem, is the source of, he's our spring. He's the source of water, source of living water the source of life and satisfaction. Second thing, by singing and dancing it. This is a great line. At the end of the Psalms, you know, so you have the, the narrowness, you know, Jerusalem is the only place. You have the broadness, you have all the nations who are gonna become members of this kingdom. What's the role of God's people? Singing and dancing about this. Singing and dancing about Jesus. Rejoicing over it. So we're, the, the, the one, and we're talking about evangelism downstairs in, in the adult Bible study. So piggyback on that just a little bit. Evangelism is less about having the right answers. Remember, the point isn't to always be right. And rejoicing in what Jesus has done for you. See, people, like, especially in our culture, especially in a postmodern culture, if you tell somebody, I have the right answers, and I can convince you that you're wrong and I'm right, they are gonna push back like crazy. We all do. We all do when somebody comes up to us and says, I'm gonna control you with my knowledge. What people wanna know is, how do you stay alive? How do you get energy? Where's your enjoyment? And if we as Christians, I'm talking to you Christians now, if we as Christians can be like, it's Jesus. Jesus has given me life. Jesus, makes, Jesus is the source of my dancing and my singing. That's the best way to do evangelism. Here's the other way to say it, is to witness. And this is from uh, Acts 1. Jonah read uh, from Acts 1 a few minutes ago. Jesus is going to take over all the nations, right? This is what Acts, the, the, the disciples come to say to Jesus, hey, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? And Jesus says, that's small stuff, guys. Hang out here in Jerusalem. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and then I'm going to make you witnesses of me all over the world. What does it mean to be a witness? 
Does it mean to always have the right answers? Does it mean to be able to convince people that you're right and they're wrong? Actually, what it means is you just tell what happens to you. You tell your story. And we as Christians need to become proficient in telling our stories. What has God done for you in Jesus Christ? Can you bear witness to what Jesus has done for you? Can you tell your story in terms of fall? I'm incredibly broken. I've done so much damage to myself. I'm talking about Aaron Miller now, not in general. I've done so much damage to myself and to my family and to my community. Scars that I will live with forever. Jesus, through no like, doing of my own, decided to rescue me and save me. The reason why I have wife and kids, the reason why I have you guys, is because Jesus is good. Because God has saved me from a path that almost certainly was gonna be some sort of level of destruction. Can we start telling our story like that? If we can, we can celebrate the narrowness of the door that is Jesus Christ, the city of Jerusalem. We can also celebrate the broadness and we can watch the nations come in. Okay, let me pray for us and then we'll have communion. Father, thank you for loving us and for being a good God. We thank you for the gifts that you've given us, especially now we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus, giving us uh, completely to himself, all of Jesus for all of us. Thank you for in your son, Jesus Christ, making us worthy to receive this gift, not through anything that we've done, but because of your righteousness and your covenant love and faithfulness toward us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.